Appreciate you being here this evening. Would like you, if you would, to open your Bibles up to the uh, book of Revelation, chapter, two, uh, chapter 1. And I want to look with you this evening at verse 2. I would like for uh, you also to mark uh, just a passage that I really want to refer to. I might refer to several passages this evening, but I want you to mark uh, Hebrews chapter 1, if you would please. Hebrews chapter 1. Really been encouraged with uh, being uh, with being with you uh, here this week, and uh, though I'm anxious to get back to the states and see my son and my wife, um, we really grown to love you this week, and can't wait till we get to be here with you this next time. Uh, I want to share with you out of uh, the Book of Revelation again, where we have been looking at together, and I just want to encourage you uh, that really all I am is a seeker. I, I am. I'm seeking after Him and seeking to know Him on a new level and, and a deeper level in my life. And He's doing things in me uh, continually, stretching me and growing me and teaching me greater dependence upon Him. And I don't claim to have any superior wisdom, uh, just a, a hunger, a deep hunger, a deep-seated hunger to know Him and His Word. And uh, I really pray that God would uh, birth that in your own life. And that if you have a true desire to seek Him, you would begin to just dive into the Word. There's no wrong... There's no wrong way to. Just get in there and seek and know and dig and just ask Him to reveal Himself to you. Feel no pressure about uh, uh, producing, you know, producing truth. Just uh, get in there and say, Jesus, reveal Yourself to me. The reason I'm getting into Your Word is to know You. And it's amazing what would happen. Uh, uh, the truth that you would find uh, and, the, and the stretching that would take place in your life when that begins to happen. So uh, anyway, Revelation chapter 1. Uh, we've been looking at this together some this week, and it's really important for us to understand the structure of not just the book, but again, uh, the first three verses. We know that the book is, has basic, the very just the basic, uh, as basic as you can get in looking through the book of Revelation, you have one division. You have uh, the first three verses of the book of Revelation, which make up the prologue, which are the words before the book. They're not a part of the prophecy. They're John's words before that he places there for uh, his readers to come to grips with what they're about to encounter with the book of prophecy. So the first three verses are not necessarily a part of the book itself. I mean, they're a part of the book, but they're not a part of the prophecy. The actual prophecy begins at uh, chapter 1, verse 4, and extends through the end of the book. So that's the main division uh, right there between verses 3 and 4. We've been looking at these first three verses, and you can divide those up, these three verses up into three basic sections, and it's really difficult. Uh, verse 1 is the first one, verse 2 is the second one, verse 3 is the third one. It's more American humor, you didn't get it, it's okay. Um, so there's three divisions in these first three verses, verse 1, verse 2, verse 3 are those three divisions. And uh, again, it's, it's in my mind, from what I've been finding, because it's been so helpful in understanding uh, what the book of Revelation is about, it's absolutely key and central to lock in on what John's trying to say to us in these first few verses. He begins the book of Revelation with the Greek word apocalypsis which we translate Revelation. And uh, it's where we get the title of the book. 
Now, the book of Revelation is not a revelation. It's a description. Uh, it's a description of the prophecy. Okay? So when you come into the book of Revelation, you're, you're entering into a prophecy. But it's described by John as a revelation. And it's interesting that he picks the Greek word apocalypsis because there's a couple different Greek words that he could have picked there. And he chose to use the word apocalypsis, which means to reveal or to unveil. In fact, this same grammar structure, the revelation of Jesus Christ, is used um, back in uh, Peter's letters. And it's really not exactly. Uh, there's, we have the of Jesus Christ is in the genitive form. And back in the Peter letters, it's the dative form. I don't know what that means to you too much, but it's really close in the grammar structure, closest anywhere else in the New Testament. And back in the Peter letters, it's translated the, uh, when Jesus Christ is revealed. When Jesus Christ is revealed. So when we're looking at this first statement, uh, opening statement that John gives, we're understanding the book of Revelation as a descriptive term. It is a revelation of Jesus Christ. So when you come into the book of Revelation, see, what you're expecting is for Jesus Christ himself to be revealed. He is being unveiled before your very eyes. You get to see the inner workings of who he is and what makes him tick and, and what's going on inside of his very person. And we found this to be consistent. Now, uh, the next statement after the unveiling of Jesus Christ is this phrase, which God gave him, which gives content to what's unveiled in Jesus. Come in the book of Revelation, and we looked at this, and so you're familiar with this already through the first few chapters. Jesus is unveiled over and over again. He's not just referred to as Jesus. He's referred to in this unveiled sense. He's unveiled before the reader's eyes. What's, but what's important, John attaches to this revelation of Jesus Christ that which God gave him. So everything that's unveiled in Jesus comes from the Father. Now this came through, for me at least, really, really, uh, really, really clear when I came into chapter 6. And again, in chapter 6, uh, Jesus has entered into the throne room, which is described in chapter 4. He has walked up and he has been found worthy to take the scroll out of the Father's right hand, which is in chapter 5. And chapter 6, uh, this, this scroll in his hands, he begins to pluck these seals. And all the way through chapter 6, these seals are plucked. And what's interesting is as each one of these seals are plucked, the unfolding of God's plan takes place, which again is in an eternity setting. An eternity setting. So Jesus is plucking these seals and the plan of God is unfolding. So, but again, see, that's consistent with how John describes the book. The unveiling of who Jesus is is the unfolding of that which comes from God. It's which God gave him. So Jesus is not unfolding his plan in, in the eternities. The, uh, the, in the eternities, even in the eternities, the eternal plan of God is unfolding through Jesus. And that's significant because on earth, Jesus was the unfolding of the, uh, the, uh, of the Father's plan. But in eternity, he's still the unfolding of the Father's plan. Jesus was the conduit or the avenue by which the Father worked, worked on earth. But he's also the conduit and the avenue by which the Father operates in the eternities. Now, I don't know what that does to you, but I'll tell you what it does to me. What we're experiencing as Christianity, I really believe this, because um, it's hard for me to get around it. Uh, what we're experiencing here on earth as Christianity is not just going to be uh, an 80-year-while-I'm-here-on-earth type of thing. Death to myself. 
and being the avenue by which Christ works and, and no longer living for myself, no, not living out of my own resource. That's not just an earthly thing. That is an eternal kingdom concept. That is the fabric of the kingdom. Amen. That's the fabric of the kingdom. So if we're not wanting that here, we're going to hate it there. See, if we're not wanting to get out of ourselves here and be, the, be, be resourced by Him here, why would we want to go to heaven? Be, you don't want to go there. Because what we're experiencing here is what we're going to experience there. Jesus in the eternities is the avenue by which the unfolding of the Father's plan takes place. He's not pulling off His plan. Again, He's the unfolding of the Father's plan. And, and you, we saw that in chapter 6. And you don't look convinced. Let me read you one, one other thing is in chapter 21, again, see, there's no temple in the city. And I also, we looked at this together. In uh, chapter 21, verse 23, the city does not need the sun nor the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God is its light, and the Lamb is its lamp. So again, hey, the glory of the Father is going to shine through Jesus. Um, I never did know this, but some of the old time, I had a guy tell me this after revival service, uh, some of the old time Nazarene, uh, preachers were raised on the theology of, uh, of that when we get to heaven, we're not going to see God the Father. The only God we'll ever see is Jesus. And we'll know the Father through Jesus. That's interesting. I, and I, hey, now, whether you buy that or not, it says in chapter 21, verse 23, that, hey, when we get to heaven, the glory of God is going to shine through Jesus, and Jesus is the avenue. Jesus is the avenue by which the glory of God comes. So see, he's still the vessel. He is still the vessel by which the Father moves. Book of Revelation. Go back with me to chapter 1. These descriptive statements that John is making, again, we're finding to be consistent as you move through the book. The book of Revelation is the unveiling of who he is. And when he is unveiled, what you see is he is the avenue by which the Father moves and works. The unveiling of Jesus Christ, which God gave him. Next, next statement. The purpose. To show his servants, and the NIV says, what must soon take place. Now, when I read that for the first time, again, the idea was, is that what's unveiled in Jesus is the movement of God and the flow of God, is the purpose of that is to show me what's going to soon take place, what's going to show me, to happen, to show me what's going to happen in the future. That's really what I thought it meant. But again, NIV at times and at points is so unhelpful. When you look at that word specifically, soon, what must soon take place, that word soon is the primary translation of that word is not soon in terms of a, uh, you know, a distant, far off thing. The primary translation of that word is quickly. Which means it's an urgency. Hey, what you're seeing going on in Jesus Christ, what's unveiled in Him, the plan of the Father, has to take place quickly. It's got to take place. Let it take place right now. Let me give you an example of this. Well, this is used in chapters 2 and chapter 3. We didn't get a chance to look at this this week. Jesus comes, and every, every issue that's going on in these churches, Jesus presents himself as the answer to those issues. He unveils himself. We're most familiar uh, with the second church, because we've looked at it this week. It's the church of Smyrna, who's undergoing persecution. Jesus unveils himself as the answer to what they're going through to their persecution. He says, hey, I'm not going to take you out of persecution. You will suffer for 10 days. You will be tested by the enemy put in prison. These things are going to happen. But he says, you understand, take heart. Hey, I'm the first and the last who died and came to life again. 
So I'm the answer. And at the answer, uh, or at least at verses, uh, at verses 10 and 11, focusing on 11, he says, Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes uh, will not be hurt at all by the second death. That is an urgent request by Jesus that focus on me at this moment. It must take place quickly because when Jesus is unveiled in our lives and we see the plan of the Father, what we see has to be accepted right now. There cannot be delay in that. Now again, that's a whole, we didn't get the chance to look at that this week. There's never enough time. But the emphasis with what's going on in verse 1 is not something that's going to take place out there and he's saying, yeah, this stuff's going to happen. It is an urgent push that what must take place, the purpose of, of, of what's going on in Jesus as was revealed to the church, must take place right now. Grab a hold of that. See, as he reveals himself to these ch seven churches, what is revealed, they have to respond. I guess the best I can do is give you an application of that. See, when Jesus reveals himself to me, I find very seldom that he reveals himself to me to show me something that's going to happen out there. When he reveals himself to me, my immediate, my immediate response has to be respond. My, hey, what has to take place, uh, I should say, is an immediate response to him. I cannot delay. When he reveals truth in my life, when he reveals and speaks to me in my life, I have to respond immediately. That's what God has... There can't be delay in that. It's not he reveals truth in my life and I say, well, let me think about it. Let me think about it. I'll get back to you. When God reveals truth to me, I have to respond immediately. So the purpose of what's going on in the book of Revelation requires an immediate response to his people. There are going to be things that are going to be taking place. There are going to be events that are going to be unfolding. But the moment that Jesus Christ moves on the scene and unveils who he is, we have to respond immediately to him. Whether we grab that or not, that's what that verse says. Uh, he, uh, to, show his per, uh, per, uh, to show his servants what must take place quickly. And of course, and we did get to look at the idea of the messenger. He sent and signified it by his messenger to his servant, John. Now, what we want to look at this, uh, this evening with you is uh, a, new, a new study for us, and it's going to be in verse 2, which is the second section of these three verses. In verse 1, we have really what the book of Revelation is about spelled out in detail. It's the unveiling of the person. And when he's unveiled, you see that it's the plan of the Father flowing through him. And as Jesus is unveiled and the plan of the Father is unveiled, personally in our life, we have to respond absolutely quickly. There's no delay in that. It's urgency. When he speaks to us, respond. Why? Because, I mean, hey, it's there is eternal things at stake in that. There are eternal deals at stake in that. Hey, that's the message. And this message was given through the messenger. And as we begin to look at the messengers in chapter two and, uh, chapters 2 and 3, we kind of... Tradition attaches that, uh, scholars say tradition attaches that to the pastors. And again, this unveiling was taking place in their life. See, that's the message. That's what the book of Revelation is about. In verse 2, we find that, actually it's the end of verse 1, end of verse 2, we find that John is giving his testimony. He's giving his testimony, and then he makes a quick statement. He makes a quick, kind of like uh, a sum-up, paraphrase or a, uh, um, a descriptive statement of the book of Revelation. This is what he says. The NIV reads, he made it known by sending his messenger to his servant John, 
who testifies to everything that he saw. That is, to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Say, John's testimony. He testifies to this. He has, he has hey, the, the revelation has come to him. He has recorded this thing down. He has written it down. And he's testifying to it. That is, be more specific. There's a, the beginning verse was the description, the detailed description of what you're going to count. But as he sits back and he looks at the revelation and he testifies to it, he says he's testifying to the word of God, the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's his testimony. Um, I've really struggled with testimonies. This is John's testimony. John testifies to it, to the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's the basic description of the book of Revelation. Yeah, it's an unveiling of who he is, but it's the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. John testifies to it. Struggle a little bit with testimonies because as a young Christian, I was always called to give my testimony. Always. I grew up in a rough town. I grew up in a, in a rough life. I grew up in a religious home, not a Christian home. Uh, I did horrible things to my body, horrible things to people around me. Just, I mean, I was destroying my life. And I got a, just a past full of collateral damage of, of my own actions. And I began to find that when I was saved, people wanted me to come and give my testimony. But you have to translate that. What they wanted was me to come and talk about that collateral damage for 45 minutes and then end it with, I got saved. That was what they meant by testimony. I didn't want to talk about the damage. I wanted to say, yeah, this happened, and then talk about, wow, testify to what God's been doing in my life. Well, that's boring. They hear that every Sunday. They wanted to hear about the bad stuff. Okay? <laughs> Struggled with the idea of testimony. And there is, I, I don't know, I guess there is something about someone identifying with me, and maybe they had drug problems too, and maybe they grew up in a sin. They can identify, yes. But see, that's not going to change their life. I mean, seriously, that's not going to change their life. Just because they identify with me and say, wow, I went through what you did. Well, that's, there's all kinds of people out there who went through what I went through. See, what's going to change their life is, is the testimony part. Jesus, yes, Jesus Christ, man, saved me. Moved in my life and released me from that bondage. I mean, brought me to victory. See, that, that's the testimony aspect. So I've kind of struggled with testimonies. John is giving us a whole new defin definition or at least, in my mind, a whole new definition, definition for me of what it means to have a testimony. He says, hey, his servant John testifies to everything that he saw. There's three aspects to John's testimony we're going to look at. But before we look at that, again, uh, I'd like to just uh, jump over to the descriptive phrase that he gives uh, for the book of Revelation, which is the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. First, the Word of God. We have uh, done some prior studies in John's books, and being that these first three verses are not necessarily a part of the prophecy itself, but are just typical John language, we've ran into some of this uh, material before studying in the Gospel of John and in the and first, second, third John, and really it's kind of a theme throughout the New Testament. So we've run into some of this material for which has been helpful. When we say that he testifies to the Word of God, that phrase is used all throughout Scripture. And there's an Old Testament understanding of it, by and large, according to scholars. You can, you can really, this is pretty well-known stuff. You can study it yourself. But there's, there's an old, an old Testament understanding of it, or at least how it's referred to. And then there's a New Testament concept to be grasped with the Word of God. The Old Testament understanding of the Word of God comes in three basic ways. 
The Word of God is a direct speaking of God. That's one way it's talked about. The Word of God came to me. I'll give you an example of that. Moses comes up to this bush. It's burning, but it's not being consumed. And he says, wow, that's interesting. Don't see that every day. He gets closer, and a voice calls out of it. Sandals fly off his feet. <laughs> and he's there. And the Word of God spoke to him. That's one way. That's one way that the Word of God is talked about. It's this direct speaking. Happens in the New Testament as well. God's Word comes. God speaks. It's the, it's the verbal speaking of God on the Mount of Transfiguration. Um, of course, uh, Jesus and Moses and Elijah you know, are up there. And, and Peter, James, and John are up there. And God speaks. And oh, wow, do you hear his voice? Yeah, it sounds like a tenor. Wow, man, that's incredible. And, and he spoke to us. And that's one way the Word of God has talked about, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. One way. The second way that you, can, you, that you can find in the Old Testament that God speaks, or at least the Word of God comes, is through the prophet. Okay? It's through the prophet. There's the verbal, direct speaking, and then there's through the prophets. Now, the prophets, is, it's powerful. We've done some studies with the prophets before. The prophet, uh, the root word of the word prophet gives a prophet its meaning. Okay? In other words, a, a prophet is called a prophet because of the root word in the word prophet, which is really easy for us to understand. The, word, the root word of the word prophet is the root word pro, which means two things. It means before and for. So the prophet had a before and a for aspect to them. Now, the before aspect of a prophet is pretty easy to understand. Prophets talked about things before they took place. That's how you knew it was a prophet. God came along and said, Thus saith the Lord, this, this, this are going to take place. Most of the time, the people of Israel said, Get out of here. <laughs> Whatever, that's not going to take place. A few years later, it did take place, and they go, Well, we should listen to that guy. Why? He's a prophet. How do we know? He told us about this, and it came to pass. Really heavy on that. God said, If a prophet ever says anything that does not come to pass, he's a false prophet. So that's a characteristic of a prophet. The before aspect, found in that root word pro talks about things <clears throat> before they come, uh, come to pass. The other aspect of the word pro, which is the prophet, is the for aspect. In my mind is more significant because it means the prophets spoke for God. We, I, I don't believe we have prophets today, and I've struggled with this for some time, but I've come to the conclusion that I don't believe we have prophets today like we had in the past. I'm not a prophet. I'm not a prophet. Uh, I don't get my words directly from the Lord. I go down to Starbucks and I sit there and drink coffee and study on the computer and work out my sermon and, you know, get it from the Word and then come and tell it to you. I don't just get the direct... God doesn't show up in my bedroom and say, Jeremiah, sit down. you got a pen and paper. Say this. <laughs> it does not have, I'm not a prophet. Okay? The prophet did not go to Starbucks and work out his sermon from the Scripture. The prophet was, God came to the prophet, selected the prophet. You couldn't run for the prophet office. You didn't as a teenager say, you know what, I think I'm going to go to college, probably all of it, and uh, I'm, going, I'm going to be a prophet. Yeah, I think I'm going to be a prophet. That did not happen. God came and chose you to be a prophet. And he says, go speak my word. Here's what's interesting. The, again, the, prophet, the words that prophets spoke wasn't the prophets. It was God's word. And it's interesting. When you look at the prophets, none of them wanted to be prophets. Because every time they got the word, they said, I'm not saying this. <laughs> Jeremiah bawled. You know, he cried. Moses tried to talk himself out of it. I can't speak. Hey, I can't do this. And then God lassoed Aaron in that. Jonah was a disaster. <laughs> See, no one wanted to be a prophet. No one wanted to be a prophet. Because when it came down to it, wasn't what they wanted to say. They came and they would say, Thus saith the Lord. 
And when you were listening to the prophet, you were not listening to the prophet, you were listening to God. It was his word that was taking place. So, word of God. When you're talking about the word of God in an old covenant setting, sometimes in the new covenant, but by and large in an old covenant setting, you were either talking about God speaking directly, which was very rare, and even then there was a mediator, but directly, or you were talking about what came through the prophets, which again was the word of God, was not man. Okay, it was, the, it was the Word of God. The third aspect you find in the New Testament about the Old Testament, and the Scripture is called the Word of God. Now, this is powerful for us because, see, the prophets either wrote it down or someone who heard the prophets speak wrote what they said down. So what you have in the Old Testament, like the book of Ezekiel or the book of Isaiah, you do not have the words of Ezekiel or Isaiah. You don't have the opinions of Ezekiel or Isaiah. When you come in the book of Ezekiel or Isaiah, you're literally reading the opinions of God. You're not reading the opinions of man. And what's powerful is, I asked you to mark the book of Hebrews, which is just a few pages back. We, you can find this in other places. Acts is, is, has this going on. Luke has this going on. Even John has this going on. But I've, I've, I've found that the book of Hebrews is most solid on it. And Hebrews is powerful because Hebrews is a reflection of the early church and how they thought. You have an established church that's being written to in the book of Hebrews. And uh, so when you find in the book of Hebrews references to Scripture, you know how the early church looked at Scripture. And I want to look at Scripture that way. Because when they quoted Scripture, it was never about what Isaiah had to say. See, when they came into... Think about, think about how this would change your Bible devotions. See, when they came into Scripture, it wasn't about what Isaiah's opinions were. It wasn't, well, hey, David had some good things to say. When you came into Scripture, it was God was speaking to you. This is non... We talk a lot about, you know, words of the Lord. And, and people... I've had people come up to me uh, and give me word, words from the Lord. And I put, I guess, some emphasis in that, and I put some weight in that. But I don't put weight in that that I put in this. Because that person who gave me a word from the Lord, well, you know, they could be psycho. They could have had pizza last night. You know what that does to you. Uh, but this is always God's word. You're never going to open the Bible and say, nah. No, this is always God's word. There's no chance that this is not God's word. Look at Hebrews with me. The chapter opens, and the first few chapters, again, are centered on Jesus being superior to all things. He begins with angels in the first few verses. Comes to verse 5, and he gives us a scripture which is going to back up what he's, uh, what he's proposing. Verse 5, he says, hey, for to which of the angels did God ever say? In other words, God said this. Which of the angels did God ever say? And he quotes, you are my son, today I become your father. Now, where does he get that from? Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, which is annotated down at the bottom, probably right hand of your Bible. You get that from Psalm 2, 7. Now, I scratch my head and think, hold on. I thought David wrote that. Well, the Hebrews writer would laugh and say, no, David didn't come up with that. God said that. Because when you come into Scripture, you're not coming into the things of man. You're coming in what he says. These things belong to him. And the Hebrews author takes Old Testament scripture and places those things on the lips of God himself. Isn't that, fa isn't that fantastic? It's the word of God, man. These are his words. He goes on. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. Now where does he get that one from? 
2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. Woo! 2 Samuel, you think, hold on. I thought Samuel wrote that down. And the book of, see, the writer of the Hebrews would say, no, hey man, Samuel didn't come up with that. God said that. And you begin to move. This is, this, is, this is powerful. You begin to move through these first four chapters and every single quotation, every single quotation is ripped out of the Old Testament author, or we should say writer, ripped out of their repertoire, out of their language, out of their brain, and it's literally placed on the lips of God. And the, and the author, it may have been written by Ezekiel, but it was not authored by Ezekiel. God came up with this. By the time you come down to the end of, uh, toward the end of chapter 4, he starts saying stuff like, for the word of God is living and active. This is not a dead book. I had a friend of mine tell me this, and he's a fellow evangelist, and just, I mean, great insight in this. He said, it's, he says, when you read uh, Shakespeare, and you argue about what Shakespeare meant, everybody can have their opinion on that. Because he's dead, who knows anyway? You can say, I think he meant this, and I think he meant this, and I think he meant this. And that, well, yeah, who's right on that? I'd probably be right. But the, the, the issue is, is that, hey, who knows? Because he's dead. Well, that's not the case with the scriptures. Because see, you read what Ezekiel said, you can't say, well, he's dead, because he didn't author this thing. The author's alive. That's why Bible study. See, that's why Bible study is not just, we sang about it tonight. That's why Bible study is not just about learning stuff. It's a communication with him. And he can reveal truth because he offered that. Do you know what that would do to you in terms of your Bible study? If you realize that literally getting into the Word was a communication with the person. It's the Word of God. Now, now this is the descriptive language. This is the descriptive language. Go back with me to Revelation chapter 1. This is the descriptive language that John attaches to the book of Revelation. This stuff is alive, man. This is the communication of the person. He's testifying to the Word of God. This is what John is testifying to. Now, when you come into an Old Testament or a reference to the Old Testament, pretty much that's what you're going to run into, the Word of God. But we need to understand, especially, I believe this, for the book of Revelation, that there's a, the concept, again, it's the concept, especially looking back from a New Testament perspective, it's the concept of the Word of God that we're after. He's not talking about Word of God as the direct speaking. He's talking about the concept of the Word of God, which is the revelation of who He is and the revelation of His plan. When the Word of God is given in concept, it is the revelation of who He is. It's the self-disclosure of His very person. God's revealing Himself. You go back into an Old Covenant hour and God's Word is given, the book of Hosea, which is an outstanding book. God is revealing His heart to the people of Israel and the love that He has for those people. He's revealing Himself. I have been, I have loved you and you have been a, like a prostitute. You have prostituted yourself to the nations. And the word of the Lord, the word of God to the people of Israel is the expression of how God feels about, uh, about how God feels about the people of Israel. And of course you also have the word of God which is not just the expression of how he feels, but it's the, it's, it's the expansion of what God is doing on behalf of his people. When God gives his word, it's about I'm going to do this and this and this on your behalf. So the word of God that was given in the Old Testament tells about the birth of Jesus. Tells about the you know, times, significant dates, you know, which we don't know when those times and dates were. We didn't know in the past. But hey, these are going to be signs of his coming, the word of God. So we're really interested in concept. 
not just voice stuff. See, when he's talking about this, not just voice, it's concept. It's the revelation of himself. When we come into the book of Revelation again, what's the whole book of Revelation about? Jesus is unveiled and we see who he is. We see that we see who he is in his person and we see the plan that God has for man. The book of Revelation about the Word of God, concept. God is revealing himself in the book of Revelation. It's like he's speaking to me. I can't tell you what that's meant for me looking at the book of Revelation. When I, when I get into it, it's, it's not like, you know, it's not like I'm just getting in here to figure out times and dates when Jesus is going to back, trying really hard to figure out when gas prices are going to go down. And, you know, <laughs> that's, no. God is revealing his heart to me in the book of Revelation. And when you see his heart at the unfolding of his plan and what he's doing on my behalf, what you see unveiled in Jesus. See, this is what's going on. It's still the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the concept of the Word of God. Old Covenant. Now you move into a New Covenant setting and the Word of God is also talked about, but this is what's interesting. I found this really interesting. That the Word of God comes exclusively in Jesus Christ. This is powerful. I never knew this. There is no evidence in this New Testament where Jesus received a Word from God. He is the Word of God. Amen. So He does not have to receive. You see, He is the Word of God. You find that. He is the Word of God. Blew me away. I had a, ran it, read into a, 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 a lexicon, a lexical deal, and a study and all about the Word of God. And it said in the New Testament hour, Jesus never received. See, He was the Word of God. In fact, found it interesting that as I begin to read through the book of Revelation, there's a description of Him coming, and you don't have to turn here, but later on toward the end of the book, uh, there in chapter 19, listen to this. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes were like blazing fire in his head, uh, and on his head was, uh, he wore many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. That's him. He is the Word of God. Now, it's interesting. That means that all of God's self-revelation is seen in Jesus. Everything God ever wanted to reveal about himself is seen in Jesus. You want to know what's on the mind of God? You look at his son. And the sum total, this is also powerful, the sum total of God's plan for me is seen in Jesus. See, we've been finding again in John chapter 5 that Jesus is the demonstration of the life that I've been called to live. You want to know what a Christian is? Look at Jesus. He tells his disciples, hey, what I'm going to do, what I'm doing, you're going to do. What I'm experiencing, you're going to experience. The same resource I have is the same resource you have. In fact, unless I go, God can't send the spirit of truth who's going to reveal you everything about me. So Jesus is the full expression of who God is. He's everything that God ever wanted to say about who he is and about who man is supposed to be. Wow, isn't that powerful? And he's the revelation. What's God's, so you can make it real easy, describe Christianity. If someone ever comes up to you and says, what's God's plan for my life? Just say Jesus. It made theology class really easy. Those long 10-page tests, I just write Jesus. Turn it in. You get an A, right? Is that how you got your doctorate? Just read you. This is a little doctorate joke. I imagine it was a little bit more difficult than that, which is why I haven't got mine. But 
again, he describes, see, it's the testimony of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is the testimony. He is the fulfillment of all word of God. And when he says, John says, I testify to, you know, to everything that I saw, that is the word of God and testimony of Jesus Christ. That and there is an equal sign. In other words, you could say word of God or testimony of Jesus Christ, same thing. He testifies to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, the word testimony there, that we get the testimony of Jesus Christ, see, John gives a testimony in our study, and Jesus gives a testimony. But John's testimony, the, word, the Greek word we have for John, uh, John's testifying, is a different Greek word than Jesus in his testimony. It's kind of neat. And what's even more significant, even than the word, to be quite honest, is that Jesus' testimony is a noun, which means it's not an action. Jesus does not give a testimony. He is a testimony. He is the testimony. He in his very person is the testimony. Jesus, that's why Jesus comes to the seven churches. Oh, this, is, this changed my life. Jesus comes to the, the seven churches. And they've got problems. They've got issues. God has a plan for those churches. What is that plan? Jesus just unveils himself. He says, I'm the answer, man. It's got to take place in your life. Everything going on in here. Because I'm the testimony. I don't give a testimony. In other words, Jesus doesn't tell us. He doesn't give the... He doesn't... He is. He is the testimony. So when John looks, he gives this just really brief descriptive uh, uh, statement about what the book of Revelation is about. He's described it in detail in the first verse. But in, in the second verse, he's talking about how he's testified about it. Instead of rewriting all that, he just says, I've testified to everything that I saw. And just to remind you, it's the word of God, the self-disclosure of who he is, and of course, uh, the plan that he has for us. And that, that's Jesus. Jesus is that. He is the plan of God. He is the self-disclosure of who He is. Anything you ever want to know about God is seen in Jesus. Anything you ever want to know about your life is seen in Jesus. He is the plan. He is the plan. And again, see, that's typical John language. It's typical John language. The disciples in chapter 14 ask Him where He's going. He says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I'm, hey, how did we get there? Me. He's the way. So if you're in Jesus, you're on the way. Well, what's, what, what you're on the way to? The truth. But Jesus is the truth. And He is the life we've been called to live. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Again, it's all summed up, uh, summed up in Him. So, this is the descriptive statement that He gives. Now, I want to just look with you uh, again briefly about... <laughs> my briefly's are never brief. But I want to look with you about this testimony. John testifies to everything that he saw, the Word of God and testimony of Jesus Christ. John testifies about that. There's three aspects that we want to look at in this testimony. First of all, it's he testifies to everything that he saw. He saw this prophecy. It's a very important deal. He saw this prophecy. Second one is he not only has saw, seen this prophecy, saw this prophecy, but he testifies to it. And the third is, is he refers to himself as a servant. He refers to himself as a servant. Which has become really interesting that that's popped up throughout the New Testament. Paul uses, his term, uh, uses this term to describe himself. John now is using this term to describe himself. It's almost like scholars tell us it became a New Testament buzzword. Servant. And in light of the New Covenant, 
it takes on a new definition. kind of want to share a little bit of that with you this evening. First is he, he testifies to everything that he saw. Now, it's obvious, and I believe this, that especially in terms of visions, there were seeing things. You saw things in visions, and I have no doubt that this has a reference to, you know, John uh, testifies to everything that he saw, visually that he saw. Yes, that's true, but this word here, there's a couple different words you can translate it, it, it for, uh, there's a couple different words John could have used for saw or seen. This one he uses here, it can, it, it's translated saw or seen, but it's also translated in this way throughout the New Testament. I looked up the different translations, I won't read through those. It's translated feel, it's translated became aware of, it's translated perceive, and it's translated sense. Which means that it's, it's beyond just vis, visual, uh, visual sight that he's talking about. That John, when he sees, when he, when he in, however you want to describe this, when he's embraced by the unveiling of who Jesus is, when he sees this prophecy, which again is beyond times and dates, it's the expression of who God is and his plan that has come to fulfillment in Jesus Christ on, on earth as in eternity, when John sees the magnitude of that, he senses it. He says, whoa, so something makes sense here about this. It's not just, yeah, I saw that. Yeah, I saw it. Because you can see something and not really have seen it. You know what I'm talking about? Jesus tells, and, and again, this is typical John language, because in the gospel according to John, Jesus looks at the leadership of Israel and says, you're blind. And they're like, what? What do you mean we're blind? Jesus says, you don't see. He's not talking about visual sight. What's he talking about? Perceive. They did not perceive who he was. They're blind. They're like, you're, you're what? blind. Oh, I can see you just fine. Jesus says, no, you can't. Wouldn't that be frustrating? This is the idea. John just didn't see it. He perceived it. He became aware of. He saw in this prophecy. He's like, what? there was a sense that, whoa, there's something greater going on here beyond just this. He's seen it. He perceived it. That's the first word, which is really powerful. And uh, the next thing we want to look at, the next aspect, knowing that he has seen it, is his testimony. Now, this word testimony, first of all, is a verb. It's not a testifying. John is not, he himself is not the testimony. It's giving a testimony. In other words, John says, hey, I testify. It's the type of thing where I stand up and I give a testimony. But here is interesting. Here's interesting how this, how, and this is just straight out of the dictionary. This is straight out of the Greek dictionary, the Greek lexicon. Listen to how they translate this word. It's a verb. It's an action that, Jesus, that, uh, that John is standing and giving his testimony. Listen to this. It is a human declaration, testifying, a human declaration of ascertainable facts. You know what ascertainable means? Me neither, but it sounds really cool. It's a human declaration of ascertainable facts based on, get this, based on first-hand knowledge and experience. First-hand knowledge and experience to bear witness. That's what it means. In other words, John, <laughs> get this, he sees this prophecy as Jesus is unveiled and the full magnitude of God's plan in Jesus' life, John sees that and goes, whoa. I, hey, that's familiar. I've experienced that. I testify to that. It's true. Everything that he said. 
that God's plan for Jesus, God's plan for us is seen in Jesus, and John testifies to that. He says, it's true. I, I'm telling you, it's the truth, man. And there has to do with experience in that. He bears witness, bears witness to it. John himself, hey, I testify. It's not just, yeah, I see, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I saw everything that took place. Yeah, there was a vision here. It wasn't that kind of thing. It's a bearing witness to the plan of God that was seen in Jesus Christ. And again, see, you can go back. You can go back throughout the book of Acts. And this is so plain as an early, as a new Christian back in, you know, well, this is 1996, and I just really began to dive into the Word. I studied Peter because I felt like I related to Peter. He was a loser and lived with his foot in his mouth and always causing problems for Jesus and, and uh, you know, just constantly doing all these things that just brought down, you know, criticism upon himself. At one time, Jesus turns and calls him, get behind me, Satan, and I mean, it's just Peter. There's a radical transformation, listen to me, there's a radical transformation that takes place once you leave the Gospels into the book of Acts. Something takes place in Peter. Well, what happened? Well, he finally went to school and, of course, he went to uh, college and he got his degrees and he got his, you know, not knocking that. That's phenomenal. I got degrees. I mean, hey, I'm knocking that. But there was something that is just all that was going on in Jesus begins to go on inside of the disciples. You move through the beginning of the book of Acts. You had Peter stands up at Pentecost and gives this sermon and 5,000 people are saved. Said, what happened to Peter? <laughs> I mean, he becomes, he becomes the head of the church, man. I mean, he's dealing with issues in the church like Ananias and Sapphira. They have him, and that's phenomenal. By the time you come into chapter 4, 5, and 6, you have people, as he's walking by, are throwing down mats so his shadow will fall on them. What happened to Peter? Well, he buckled down. He got disciplined. That's what it was. Yeah. He learned the right way to stand when he's preaching. And No. Yes, man. The fulfillment of God's plan. See, see that's... This is not hard to buy into. See, John looks at the book of Revelation and he sees the unveiled Jesus Christ, the unveiling of God's plan and God's purpose. He is, he is the testimony of that. Not only on earth, but in the eternities. And John testifies to that. He says, I, hey, I've experienced that. That is true. God's plan is true. It's not a lie. It's not just yeah, everything Jesus did was true. It's God's plan is true because that's who Jesus is. See, there's a distinction we have to make in our mind. Jesus is not someone who just came and did everything that God said, so we applaud him and make him our king. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's plan for man. And everything God ever said on our behalf has come to fulfillment in Jesus. So when we testify about Jesus, when we testify about I believe in him, what we mean by I believe in him is not just magic words. See, I don't get to go to heaven because I believe Jesus did the things that he did. Even the devil believes that. Believe is not just a believing in facts. Believing is I believe that that is the plan of God. Therefore, it's the plan for me. I believe that's the plan of God for man because he lived in a way that no man could live. John says, I testify to it. That plan is true. Why? Let me walk you through my life. <laughs> Isn't that powerful? I want that to be my testimony. Not testimony as in, yeah, I believe in everything Jesus did. But the testimony that, yes, I believe in Jesus. Why? Because everything he talked about is coming, coming to pass in my life. Everything he said, man, is true. I'm telling you, first-hand experience. I bear witness to it. And you have emerging, you have emerging a whole new definition of servant. 
Back in the Old Testament hour, God's prophets, and servant is someone who is, who is, um, uh, who is uh, uh, you know, uh, a servant of, he's a slave of, he's under the will of someone else, does duties, commands, yes. But in the religious sense, God's prophets were called servants, which were the vehicle of him speaking. There's a designation for the prophet. You were God's servants, the prophets. You bring that in the New Testament hour. Servants are not just one who, people who do the will of God. Servants are those who are bearing witness to the testimony. They're the ones bearing witness to what take place, took place in Jesus Christ. I want to ask you, one, are you a servant? And if you say yes, what that, what that means for us is to be servants of Jesus as we are ones out on the streets of our lives who are bearing witness to Jesus Christ. Which means what? Everything he said is true. And how do I know that? Follow me around and look at my life. Because I'm experiencing everything that he said I would experience. I'm living in victory in every way that he said I would live in victory. That's the message of the book of Revelation. Not only here, but there. Jesus sees it's, it's the full fulfillment of the plan. Jesus is the testimony of the word of God. He is the fulfillment of that. And John says, oh, I believe it. Because you can't testify to Jesus unless you're experiencing it. You can't testify to it. Because testify means I'm experiencing it. I don't know what that means to you, but... See, I want to be able to stand in my life and testify to Jesus. Not just so I'll go to heaven or not because I should, but I want to be able to testify... I want to be able to testify that everything Jesus, He is the plan of God for man. And I'm a living testimony of that. Jesus, I believe in You. I do. I believe in You. I believe in You. I believe in You. And it's not just a mental assent. It's not just mentally I agree with you. I agree with you. Yeah, hey, I believe in you, sure. But I believe in you, meaning that the fulfillment of all that God has ever dreamed is seen in you, both in Himself and for us. And I believe that's true because, hey, I'm experiencing that. I can bear witness to that. There's attributes of who you are that's flowing in my life. I'm not satisfied where I'm at. Hey, I don't have that going on to the extent that I want it. I want that to be my I want to be a test I want to stand and testify to that. What an opportunity we had this evening, Jesus, to ask you to do in us what your father was doing through you.